me to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the second half of that chapter, third and final week in that chapter. A group of uh, close friends had a reunion when they were 30 years old. And they were discussing where they should go for dinner. Somebody suggested that they meet at a restaurant called The Glowing Embers because the service was fast. They all agreed. Fifteen years later, at the age of 45, they all met again and discussed where they should, have for, where they should go for dinner. Somebody suggested, how about if we go back to The Glowing Embers because the food and wine selection there are very good. And they all agreed. Another 15 years later, at 60, they once again discussed where to meet. Somebody suggested, let's go to the glowing embers. Because they can eat there in peace and quiet, and the restaurant is smoke-free. And they all agreed. Another 15 years later, at the age of 75, the group again discussed where they should meet. Somebody suggested... How about the glowing embers? Because the restaurant is physically accessible and even has an elevator. They all agreed. Fifteen years later, at the age of 90, the same group of friends discussed once more where they should meet for dinner. Somebody suggested, how about that restaurant, the glowing embers? Because they had never been there before. And they all agreed. We tend to forget. God never forgets. Once he promises something, he always fulfills. He doesn't need a reminder. But we do. And that's the purpose of a covenant. That's the purpose of a covenant. God relates to us in covenant. And that's what we see in our text today. A ceremony in which Yahweh promises to give Abram the land of Canaan. Please look with me at verse 7 of chapter 15. And he said to him, this is God speaking, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. To give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall have possession of it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation 
that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go with your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the river, the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephamites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's remind ourselves for a second of the context in which we jump into. Yahweh has appeared to Abram in a vision in order to calm his fears back in chapter, uh, verse 1. Fears of retaliation, fears of security, fears of progeny, not having any. And God's promise reminder was, if we remember, he takes them out and he shows them the stars. That's your reminder. And scripture says, Abram believed God and he counted that as righteousness. As we discussed last week, here's the first clear explanation of how salvation works. Abram believes Abram trusts, Abram has faith in God's promises, and that faith is credited, reckoned, declared righteousness in his account. That is the what that happens in salvation. That's the what. But what about the how? How is God going to accomplish this? And that's what our text today shows us. We're given a guarantee of this promise in the form of a covenant. In the form of a covenant. God reiterates the land promise here in verse 7. You can see that. He says, I, the Lord who brought you out of the earth of the Chaldeans, give you this land to possess. Now this is actually the fourth time that God has reiterated this promise to Abram. And I don't know if that's what engenders him to, to ask the question of God. It might have. But after four times you're promised this and there's no, nothing in sight that fulfilling this, Abraham looks at God and says, How, O Lord, am I going to take possession of this? How are you going to do this? How will I know, he says, that I'll have possession of this? Now, that can be read one of two ways, can it? A question can be read one of two ways. It can be read as doubt or as reassurance. In other words, he can be asking this question of God with a heart of doubt. And saying something like, hey, listen, I haven't seen this. You keep telling me this, but you're not showing me this. You've told me four times, and you know what? I'm starting to doubt that you're going to fulfill this. Is that his heart motivation for this question is the question I asked. Or Abraham, Abraham can be asking this question in a, 
in a way in which he's asking God to reassure him of this promise, a reassurance. In other words, and we've said this before, like in Mark 9, with the soldier who says, Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's the, that is the motivation that I'm saying Abram is asking this question of God in. It's not doubt, it's reassurance. As I said a few weeks ago, you can always tell the heart of the person asking a question to God by how God answers. You can always tell by how God answers. This question is almost asked word for word 2,000 years later in the temple when Zechariah is serving there in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah goes into the temple and, and the angel Gabriel appears there and Gabriel tells him, you are going to have a son and you're going to call his name John and he is going to be blessed among men. He's going to pave the way for the Savior. And and Zechariah asks this question. How shall I know this? Almost word for word. But do you remember how how Gabriel responds to that question? You know it was a question of doubt because he struck dumb. Principle in Scripture, doubt... Unbelief is judged. And he's judged for his doubt. You will not be able to speak until the day your boy is born. You can hear Abram's question in Zechariah's question. How am I to know that I'm going to take possession of this? But he's not struck dumb, is he? He's not judged for that question. He's reassured. God comes and reassures him. And he reassures him by giving him a covenant. We all need reassurance from time to time in the promises of God, don't we? He just doesn't say him once and we believe it and that's it. Several weeks ago, I told you that the passage of time puts pressure on God's promises. Isn't that true? As it goes on, we start to go, I don't know. John the Baptist was in prison. He started going, gosh, is my cousin the Messiah? Passage of time puts pressure on God's promises. And we need reassurance. I remember when my kids were younger, we used to put them to bed, and they used to say, Dad, will you stay in the next room till I'm asleep? They wanted reassurance that I would be there to quell their fears. Reassurance gives people what they need to go on, to go forward, to keep going. And that's what God is doing with Abram here. God says, go get me a heifer, a ram, a goat, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And it seems like Abram knows exactly what to do, isn't it? I mean, if you look there, all God is telling him to do is go get these animals. But he knows exactly what to do with those animals. Abraham cuts them in two and places them facing each other, just like in the picture up here. Makes a little bloody path between them. Something that makes no sense to us, but makes absolute perfect sense to Abram. 
Abram knew what God was getting ready to do. He was getting ready to make a covenant with him. As a matter of fact, and I think I've told you this before, but this really displays that the Hebrew word for covenant is actually literally translated cut a covenant. There's always cutting involved. And Abram knew exactly what to do. He was going to make a covenant with him. We don't speak too much in terms of covenant anymore, so that's kind of a foreign concept for us. Let me give you a a definition of what a covenant is. Very short, very brief, and then I'll explain it. A covenant is a unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promise. A covenant is a unilateral, unconditional, irrevocable promise promise. Unilateral, one way. Not both ways. A contract is both ways. You do this, I do that, right? Covenant is one way. Unconditional, not based on anything the other party does. I'm making this promise to you one way. It doesn't matter how you react to it. And irrevocable, binding, permanent. Now, the closest thing that we have to this today, and it is a covenant, is the covenant of marriage. And we can look at those three properties of a covenant within the covenant of marriage. When I stood before our pastor and we had our our ceremony, as many of you did, our marriage ceremony, I said, and I quote, I, Blake, take you, Carrie, to be my lawfully wedded wife to have and to hold this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish from this day forward till death do us part. I was entering into a unilateral covenant at that point. I, Blake, take you, carry. With those words, I was saying, this is one way. No matter what you do, I'm with you. No matter what goes on, I am telling you, I will stay with you and love you. It's one way from my perspective. I was also entering into an unconditional covenant for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's why we say these things. With those words, I was promising, Carrie, no matter what the circumstances are in our life, I will stay in love. It doesn't depend on how you act. And then it is also irreversible. Till death do us part. Permanent binding. We say at the end of the ceremony, whom God has put together, let no man put us under. With those words I was promising, this covenant is irrevocable. I'm with you forever. That's the same kind of covenant that God makes with his people. And, and what's very interesting is throughout Scripture, God, God only relates to his people through covenant. That's how he relates to us, is through covenant. They're unilateral covenants. They're established by God towards his people. Think of the covenant we just talked about several weeks ago with Noah. And the rainbow. It wasn't depending on anything Noah or the people. He just says, I will never flood. 
and kill and judge in that way again. And the rainbow is going to be what you look to to remind you of this covenant. It's one way. Not based on any condition, despite what we do. And, and brothers and sisters, our world does a lot that God doesn't like. And we deserve that punishment right now. But he says, no, I promise not to. And it's irrevocable. He said in that covenant, never again. And he's saying the same thing with Abram in this covenant. He's reassuring his people that this land that I've told you four times is yours, is bankable. It's yours. And I'm going to make a covenant that's unilateral, unconditional, and irrevocable. Covenants are the way that God allows us people to exhale. Covenants are how he allows us to go, it doesn't depend on me. But we love to take that pressure on, don't we? These covenants free us from worry and doubt and fear. Charles Spurgeon said, there is no more blessing way of living than the life of faith based upon a covenant. Keeping God, a covenant keeping God to know that we have no care for he cares for us, that we have no fear except to fear him, that we have no troubles because we have cast our burdens upon the Lord and are conscious that he will sustain us. Covenants, by knowing the covenant and the covenants of God, we can really exhale and trust God. And we need that type of assurance because of the context of the covenants. The context of the covenants. And that's our second point. The first section of Scripture, 7 to 11, we see that he is making a covenant. In the second section of our text today, 12 through 16, we see the context of that covenant. We see Yahweh seems to go on a tangent here. Did you feel that when I read it? I don't know if you did, but... I was struggling all week to figure out why did he put this little little window into the future here? Why did he go into that? It seems like he just kind of went on a tangent here. Some details on living during this covenant. We know that God does everything for a purpose. There are no throwaway sections of scripture. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that all scripture is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness. So what do these verses help us do? Well, God is giving Abram three realistic expectations while living in this covenant. Three expectations. The first one is the covenant, this covenant is going to be on God's timetable. The covenant that he is cutting right here is going to be on God's timetable. Look at verse 16. It says in verse 16, You shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, it's going to, there's, a, there's a bracket on the other end of this. When is this covenant going to be fulfilled? Well, when the sin of the Amorites is complete. Amorites is a synonym for the inhabitants of 
of the land of Canaan. The group mentioned down in verses 19, 20, and 21. He was giving Abraham a little peek behind the curtain of his sovereignty that Canaan would be his, but not yet. God has a timetable. God was giving the Canaanites time to repent. He was going to get the land, but he wanted to give the people living in that land opportunity to repent. Isn't that amazing? I don't know if you, you followed the, the uh, story of the case of David and Louise Turbin in the news. This is the couple from California who held their 13 children hostage for years and years and years. Have you heard about this? They... There are 13 children ranging from, from I think, 8 to 29. They, they kept them hostage and chained them to their beds and to the furniture for, for years and years and years and years. They tortured them. They teased them with food. They only allowed them to, to shower once a year and to live in their own filth. I mean, all the details actually haven't come out about this. I'm sure there's more. The details, uh, the 29-year-old girl, the eldest, who was found chained to a bed, only weighed 82 pounds when they found her. Imagine the horrors of those children over those years. How do we feel towards those parents? What they did to those innocent little children for such a prolonged period of time. I can only speak for myself, but I think whatever judgment they get will be just. They deserved it because of the atrocities they committed. The scriptures tell us that the Canaanites were equally heinous in what they used to do. They were adulterous, pornographic, idolatrous society. They openly practiced incestual relationships. They accepted homosexual relationships as an alternative lifestyle. They practiced bestiality, child sacrifice. The God they served, Molech, is actually seen in statues as his hands being held out like this in a fire in his belly. And what parents used to do is take their little infants and place them on the hands of this statue and then the priests would throw them into the fire. They used to take their little babies and, and put them on the ground and place the cornerstone of their house on top. Because they thought that that the gods would bless them if, one of, if they sacrificed one of their infants for good fortune in that house. But Yahweh told Abram, the Amorites, the Canaanites, I'm going to give them a chance to repent of all that they have done. I'm giving them 400 years, he says, to turn from their ways. God is an amazing, long-suffering, patient God with sin. 
But verse 16 tells us something, that God is long-suffering, but he's not ever suffering. God's patience will end. And we see the end of God's patience when they come back with Joshua and they exterminate everybody in the promised land. People come to us and we say, that is exhibit number one why I don't believe in your God. How could a good God do that? Well, they don't know the atrocities that those people were committing over the centuries. And the patience that God had with those people while committing those atrocities. If you're here today and you're not a self-described Christian, I want to tell you how glad I am that you're here. I'm overjoyed that you're here. And we want you to come back again and again and again. The Bible teaches that God is a long-suffering God, but not an ever-suffering God. His patience has an end. Your sin, however small you might think it is, however small you might think it is, deserves punishment before a holy and perfect God. And God in his goodness is giving you this particular moment in time to come to him, to repent. Paul, in writing to the Corinthian church, wrote, Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. If you're here, you might be feeling that moment, that press, that lean in from God. I want you to know that there is hope and peace and forgiveness and love and acceptance in Jesus Christ. He's giving you this opportunity. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ. God is long-suffering, but not ever-suffering. So we learn here from this interlude, first, that God has a timetable, but secondly, that God's timetable is long. It says here, 400 years. Or the fourth generation, their generations were 100 years. Ours are 20, theirs are 100 years. Fulfillment of this, he's telling Abram, is a long way off. And even in verse 15, we're told, Abraham, you won't live to see it. And the last thing we learn about God's covenant is the time between the promised land and its fulfillment will be hard. There's an allusion here to the Egyptians and slavery, isn't it? We see that 400 years of slavery in Egypt told to us right here in verse 13. The time between promise and fulfillment will be difficult. And that is the nature of God's land promise with Abram. God's timetable will be long and hard. And he wants Abram to know this. And by the way, children of God, he wants us to know this too. What's true of the land covenant is equally true of the new covenant that we live under. God's timetable is going to be long and it's going to be hard. Jesus did not hide this from us, did he? You can read this in 
Matthew 14 and Luke 13. You can read this in chapter 15 of John and chapter 16 of John. Over and over again, he is telling his people, us, listen, the time between the covenant beginning and when I come back is going to be long and hard, but I want you to know about it. And he tells us about it again and again. There will be many false prophets. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will be in constant conflict. There will be famines and earthquakes. Lawlessness will increase. Love will grow cold. That during this period, this long period, God's people, my children, will go through great difficulty and suffering. Starting with the Roman persecutions, where they used to dip Christians in tar, strap them to a pole and light them on fire as torches to light up their feasts. The time between Jesus' ascension and his return will be long and hard. Why does he tell Abram this? Why does he tell us this? In John 16.1, right after he tells them about this difficulty they're going to, to endure, he says these words, I have told you these things to keep you from falling away. Bookend of that chapter in verse 33, he says those famous words, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I'm coming back. It's not going to last forever. It's going to be long and hard, but it's not going to last forever. The reason God is telling us the longness and the hardness of the waiting is to encourage our faith. Encourage our perseverance. Encourage us to trust his promise. Just because it's hard doesn't mean it's not coming true. Just because it's long doesn't mean it's not coming true. Apple trees have an amazing little secret. They're able to store energy over a long haul. You see, when a late frost happens in the spring and and freezes the buds... The apple tree is able to store up energy in thousands of little small bumps, and perhaps you see these around, little small bumps or nodules called seons. All that energy pulsates through this network of seons until the spring of the following year. Then you have an explosion of buds as an apple tree unleashes all this stored up energy, and you have a harvest many times that breaks Limbs off trees, the apples are so many. The time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming is going to be hard. Sometimes the harshness of frost of this life, cancer, divorce, bankruptcy, trauma, grief, depression, causes our hearts to freeze. But at the core of the Christian faith, we also live with an incredible covenant promise of hope and of peace with God and of forgiveness for our sins, incredible grace and mercy, love and acceptance by God found only in Jesus Christ. God wants us to see that and he wants us also to see how committed he is to his covenant.
Abram has prepared himself to walk through these severed animals because that's normally what would happen. He has gone, he's severed them, he's placed them on his side, had a bloody trail in the middle, and he knew that he was going to walk through that path. Because in the ancient Near East, this was a common covenant promise. You would take an animal. If you were a, uh, let's say, a conquered nation, and the king that conquered you would say, go get a, a cow, and you would go get a cow, you'd cut it in half, and you'd set the halves facing each other with a bloody trail in between. And then you would make promises to that king that conquered you. His promise to you was, I'll protect you. But you have to do this, 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 and this. And you, being the conquered nation, the conquered person, the conquered king, would walk through between those two animals, getting blood on your feet as you went. And the symbolism there was, listen, I promise to do this, 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 and this, and if I don't do that, you have the right to make me like this animal. I'm giving you the right to kill me if I don't fulfill my side of the bargain. And Abram knew this. So he was waiting there, ready to be told to walk through. Given the conditions of the covenant, I promise to give you land. Now here's what you have to do to get the land. But we don't see that here, do we? We, we don't see God saying, okay, here's your part of the bargain. What happens is that in verse 17, when the sun goes down, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. God normally appears to mankind as smoke and fire. You know that? You probably do. You just don't know you know that. Here, how were the Israelites led in the wilderness? By a pillar of smoke and fire by night. How did God appear to Moses? In a burning bush. What was above the tabernacle as they camped? A fire. He always appears to his people by fire and smoke. What was above Sinai when they were doing the Sinai covenant? Fire and smoke. And so here we see him coming as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. And God passes between the animals. In essence saying, you won't have to keep this promise. You know who have to keep this promise? Me. You know what ha- will happen if... If I don't give you this land, I will take the consequences. I will die. I will be killed. I will be punished. He was saying to Abram, the fulfillment of the promise does not depend on you. It depends on me. Ian Duguid in his commentary says, how could God have communicated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could it have been displayed more vividly? The only way would have been for the figure to become reality. 
for the ever-living God to take on human nature and taste death in place of his covenant-breaking children. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. This covenant ceremony is one of the most vivid pictures of Jesus Christ we have in Genesis. The answer to the catch-22 spiritual question of how God can perfectly punish sin yet save a continually sinning person like myself? The answer is Jesus Christ. He says to us right here, God's promise of salvation does not depend on you, but depends on me. And that's why Jesus had to be born. That's why he had to be born. We To be treated like those severed animals for our sake. 1 Peter 2.21 words it like this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. The God-man Jesus was born to take the punishment for our sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it like this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes the punishment. We get his righteousness. Jesus came to redeem us from the death penalty of the law. Galatians 3 puts it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. See, Jesus raised his hand in eternity past and said, I will be made like those animals. I will take the punishment. All of this was promised to us more than 4,000 years ago, brothers and sisters. At a faraway land on a little hill that we don't even know about. And it was made to a recovering moon worshiper. And it's been a long, hard road. But if we know of Christ's covenant commitment to us, we know that he who promised is faithful. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I ask you to change us by knowing what you did for us on the cross those many years ago. Help that reprioritize our life. In Jesus' name, amen.